Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Mike Gaffari, for the introduction to our guest today, Walker Druitt, CEO and founder of New Breaks. New Breaks wants to make the brake repair process simple and frustration-free. We discuss why Walker always had his heart dead set on being an entrepreneur, the inspiration behind helping people with their cars, even though he didn't come from an automotive background, his approach to scale, and also how he hires being a first-time CEO. Without further ado, here's Walker. Walker, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? Mike, I'm doing well, and it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the time. Oh, I really appreciate you taking the time, Walker. So let's start at the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to entrepreneurship? You know, my initial attraction to entrepreneurship started at a young age. I uh, I was grew up in a household of entrepreneurs. My father was an entrepreneur. My mother was an entrepreneur as well. And you know, going back to the earliest days of my childhood, I remember quite frequently driving in the car, just talking about different business ideas, or saying, "Hey, man, you know." Our, our neighborhood is really missing this business. We could take on this opportunity or we're missing a really good Mexican restaurant. Like, why isn't somebody doing that? Or um, why do I still have all of these paper punch cards whenever somebody could combine them into a digital loyalty app? And my so my earliest uh, passion for entrepreneurship came, I think, from my family. And then ultimately, whenever I got into high school, I started sinking my teeth into it myself, helped to launch the entrepreneurship club, uh, started a couple of small businesses while in high school until we got in trouble for doing that because we were taking the kids. We were ultimately selling kids things when their parents were sending them to school to donate to different fundraisers and such. And so we got, we got banned from that, but then, uh, you know, tried starting a business when I was a sophomore in college and then ultimately launched uh, new wash now new breaks, uh, back in 2016, going into my senior year. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, we had another entrepreneur that when he was in high school, he also, uh, his school reprimanded him for a couple of software businesses that he started. Some of them, you know, they, they should be promoted. Exactly, exactly, absolutely, absolutely. It, sh- it, should be, it should be part of the education system, right? That's right. So, since you were a young age, you were really looking at opportunities, asking yourself questions, why doesn't this exist? Why doesn't that exist? Ultimately, I guess for your, even though you've started a few different businesses, what led to New Wash? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, it follows the same trend as, as the original question that you asked, which is what ultimately got me excited about entrepreneurship. And, and you know, in, in launching New Wash, which is now New Breaks, but we started out as an on-demand mobile car wash marketplace business. And what really inspired that was, you know, we identified an opportunity to improve the car care experience. And secondly, I have a passion and uh, my team has a passion uh, for creating value, uh, building teams, growing teams, leading teams, and creating value for the customer. And the opportunity was with New Wash was to improve the car care experience. Our thesis with New Wash from the earliest days was caring for your car, getting your vehicle service is a painful, cumbersome experience, one that we've all come to know and have a strong distaste for. You know, meanwhile, expectations are continuing to rise and rise rapidly from the standpoint of demanding convenience, affordability, 
personalization and wanting our goods and services readily available at our fingertips. And so we initially set out to attack that opportunity as it applied to car care with an initial focus on the car wash business, but obviously have uh, expanded and adjusted our focus towards maintenance and repairs. So before you transitioned to New Brakes, like what was the day-to-day ops look like in your mind? And then how did it evolve into New Brakes? Yeah, sure. So for us in our earliest days, it was very heavy uh, ops, very heavy operationally. And the story goes is myself and our early co-founding team you know, didn't have significant experience or much at all in automotive, much less car washing. And so we had to actually figure out uh, how to build this business from the ground up. Not to mention, there was not a whole lot of capital behind us at that point. So uh, myself and our early co-founding team we went out and washed the first 5,000 cars ourselves. So, you know, we'd go to class in the morning at 8 a.m., come home, work on the business during the day, figure out how do we actually build this operationally? How do we acquire customers? What we did initially was spent a lot of time promoting our services at all the high-rise and mid-rise apartments and condos. And then at nighttime, between 8 a.m. And, and, and 2 a.m., we would go actually, eight, sorry, 8 p.m. and 2 a.m., we would go out and actually wash cars every single night. So we did that for about the first 12 months, ultimately graduated from school, worked our way out of working in the business and, and spent more time working on the business, ultimately raised a, a round of seed capital, built the team, scaled the business into another market, and ultimately uh, transitioned into new breaks. Uh, but I think we'll get to that part of the story here in a few minutes. That's awesome. What was the uh, the market that you expanded to outside of Austin? So initially it launched into Austin, ultimately expanded to Dallas-Fort Worth. I mean, at this time when you're transitioning, from New Wash to New Breaks. You, you've New Wash in two markets. You've been Dallas and Austin. Did you feel like you had to take a step back and first prove yourself in one market or did you initially launch in two? So we launched into two markets within the first 60 days. So from going live, we launched into two markets within the first 60 days. And what occurred was New Breaks was quickly accelerating and was you know nearly the size of New Wash within just a few months. And, and we were actually running the businesses in parallel at that point. And after a few months of running New Breaks in parallel with New Wash, the car wash model, was, you know, then we had to take a step back and say, hey, what are we really doing here? Which of these business lines do we believe in most? Which of these, if we could, you know, allocate all of our resources, being our time, people, and money uh, towards one of them, which one makes the most sense? And at that point, it was very clear that maintenance and servicing uh, was the model. And so we ultimately deprecated the new wash. We reallocated all of our resource over towards new breaks full time and, uh, and continue accelerating from there. How many people in those first 60 days, how many like mechanics, auto repair professionals, how many were you hiring? In those first 60 days, I think that we had around five full-time service professionals, which we call technicians. Since you started with brakes, how many brake repairs could they do in like one day, a single professional? Yeah, sure. You know, a single professional can do around somewhere between four and six repairs in a, in a given day. Cool. Um, at this point, when you were pivoting from new wash to um, new breaks, were you also raising capital? We were not raising capital, at which point we pivoted. However, th- within th- you know about three months, when new breaks had accelerated quite quickly and we wanted to reallocate all of our you know, resources towards growing new breaks, um, above all else, at that point, we raised some capital or we, we began that process. And you know within about a month, had, uh, had received a term sheet from Bling Capital to lead our seed round. That's amazing. And so what was that process like for you raising your seed? How did you go around building relationships? And what were all some of the reasons why investors passed? Um, add a little bit of context. It's fortunate enough, even when scaling new wash, we had raised a pre-seed round. In that pre-seed round was fortunate enough to 
I had met our very first investor uh, was a student-focused investor, a uh, student-entrepreneur-focused investor. And that's Eric Tarzinski from Contrary Capital. He's been a phenomenal supporter of mine and of the company and team. And um, whenever we had transitioned towards scaling new breaks, uh, I'd gone back to our initial pre-seed investors and provided them context on you know what we were ultimately doing. And at that point, Eric had connected me with Bling Capital and Ben Ling led our, led our seed round. And so uh, for me, it was very fortunate to come into a very, very supportive pre-seed investor that I met while going to school at university. Of Texas, and my network has has very much scaled as from that node. What were some of your objectives after you raised your seed round as new breaks? Was the plan to focus on those two markets and not expand to a third, or was it to expand more offerings in terms of different services? I mean, how did you think about scale? Um, post seed round, the objectives were we did want to expand into another market. We wanted to improve our expansion model with a very lightweight, capital efficient expansion model. Secondly, was we wanted to grow the team and more specifically needed to bring in some operations focused folks to help us scale. Um, because up to that point, as you know, myself and a couple of others were very heavily focused within operations, which can be, you know, pretty day to day rather than week to week, month to month, quarter to quarter, which at that point is where we needed to think a bit more strategically. And so we needed to build the team. We expanded into new markets and then ultimately just driving deeper penetration within the markets that we were in. And so raising our seed round over the next 12 months is we scaled upwards of 1500% in growth. And so about 15x year over year growth over that period of time. Uh, So it's pretty significant growth, but largely just within the markets that we were operating within, which was Austin, Houston, Dallas. How did you think about an approach customer acquisition? Because I mean, I'm thinking about myself. Like, I would drive around um, if I want a mechanic, but of course, you don't have any real estate, right? If that's correct, everything kind of comes to comes to the actual customer. What was your approach for to customer acquisition and kind of getting the word out? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, certainly our acquisition strategy has evolved and continued to evolve over time. But naturally, in the earliest days, is went to the highest converting, uh, you know, opportunities that we could find, which is, you know, uh, search, right? Perhaps you're, you're driving around, but oftentimes you're not really sure where you should go or you need, you want to get a couple of quotes and you don't want to necessarily drive around to a bunch of different shops. And so you go to your friend Google, right? And so we definitely initially, uh, pretty heavily focused through, you know, the highest intent channel, which is search. Um, since then have brought it out quite significantly from an acquisition standpoint. And, you know, to your point is one of the, uh, challenges that a, that a model like ours takes on is that we don't have that brick and mortar acquisition channel. And so how do we offset, how do we compete with incumbents in the space whenever we don't have that medium that they do, which, you know, while it does come at a cost, it's not necessarily directly attributable to a customer acquisition cost as we might know it. Of course, as we continue to to grow and scale, it's important that we diversify our acquisition channels. However, I think it's really important in a a young startup's earliest days is is diversification in acquisition channels is actually not necessary uh, and perhaps can be, can be a significant distraction. If you have good low-hanging fruit, well, look, let's max those out. In parallel, start thinking about or experimenting with net new channels, uh, but otherwise squeeze all the juice that you can out of those earliest, uh, you know, out of those earliest sources. Definitely. And also, I'd imagine if one channel is working extremely well, um, focus on obviously scaling the channel before you move on to the next one. Correct. You talked as well a bit about how when you founded New Breaks, you wanted to, you knew that what was key was to control or own that customer experience. And really that net promoter score, obviously a critical, rising from negative to, you know, years in the 90s for the, for the whole industry. What would you say that 
you did differently when it came to experience that other repair shops just didn't do or didn't think about? What do you think like is like the secret sauce? Yeah, so you know, of course, people absolutely love the convenience. They love being able to stay at their home and get their vehicle worked on. Uh, they love that we do it at a really affordable price. In fact, we're generally fifteen to thirty percent more affordable than the shop or the dealership. But above both the convenience and the affordability is the trust. Trust and transparency is the single most important value proposition that we can bring into the equation. Because the reality is, is that you you don't get your vehicle worked on all of that frequently. You're not sure what is truly needed, what is not needed, what is a good price versus what is a bad price. And so really taking the time to educate the customer and having our technicians, our, our frontline workers at the location of the customer on their home turf, having an educated conversation with them about why they might need X or why they might need Y, or in many cases telling them that, hey, that recommendation that you received from you know the dealership or from the shop down the road while you were getting an oil change, for example, was inaccurate. And in fact, they were trying to sell you things that you don't actually need. And there's been many times in which we've told customers exactly that. Hey, you don't actually need brakes right now. Uh, call us back when you do. Right. And so trust and transparency is the single most important value proposition that we can bring to the customer experience. You combine that with the convenience uh, and the affordability, and it certainly is a winning formula. But above all else, trust and transparency. Now, a lot of cars, it seems these days, has extended warranties. Like I just bought a Subaru and it has like a crazy warranty. Does that hurt? new brakes at all since you're competing as dealerships for obviously for maintenance repairs or not so much? Mike, not so much. Um, your your standard warranty or really any any warranty or extended warranty doesn't cover the types of services that we deliver to you. Your warranty is going to cover manufacturer defects, uh, parts defects. It's not going to cover an oil change. It's not going to cover a brake repair. It's not going to cover your suspension needing to be revamped. And so the services that we offer, generally your preventative maintenance and select repairs is not going to be covered within a warranty. That being said, we certainly see you know extended warranties in particular as an opportunity for us. And what I mean by that is we're currently uh, having multiple conversations with uh, companies that offer extended warranties uh, to be their service provider. Whereas, you know, customers can A, uh, receive their warranty services through through us, but B, also it can serve as an acquisition channel for us to deliver those more traditional preventative maintenance services. And so we see it as an opportunity and not necessarily competitive dynamic. So after brakes, since that was the first high margin, um, since, since that was the first product you or service that you offered, how do you go about expanding to different types of services? And what are the current like service offerings? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the reality is, is our, our, our technicians, our service providers are full stack mechanics. They can operate on most every aspect of the vehicle. And so while we have historically, you know, heavily focused on, on brake repair, or even more specifically for consumers, uh, the reality is, is that our service providers are, are A, fully equipped to deliver a, a broad set of services and B, are, are fully capable of delivering a broad set of services. And then what I'll say next is, is the reality is, is our customers want more from us. Right. You know, whenever you get a, a mobile service done, which is oftentimes the first time that they're having a mobile service completed on their vehicle because it's generally a newer customer experience, they want more. They they don't want 
to have to relive going into the shop or going to the dealership anymore. And so our customers really for the last, you know, year plus have been asking us for more. And, you know, on one hand, we've been very heavily focused on brake repair, but on the other is more recently, we've broadened our service offering. So we're now offering a full suite of preventative maintenance and repairs, everything from, you know, oil changes to batteries, to suspension, to um, headlights, taillights, alternators, and similar repairs. And so we envision a world where you never go to the shop or the dealership again. And, you know, as via Vehicles, furthermore, as vehicles continue to become smarter and more connected, is that your vehicle is largely telling you when it needs to be serviced. And our service platform integrates directly into that vehicle, and uh, we're algorithmically predicting, managing, and delivering the services that you need. That's awesome. That's really cool. I know we talked about hiring a little bit, but would love to kind of expand on it since you're obviously a very young CEO. Your new breaks is scaling like crazy. How has been your approach to hiring, you know, a lot more people that had a ton of industry experience? Um, how are you able to lure them or attract them over to new breaks? Yeah, I think it starts with who are we actually looking for? What does the business need right now? And, and where do they exist? Where do they live? And so, you know, my starting point for that is, is going and talking to other experienced leaders that have perhaps served in that function. Perhaps they're a prospective candidate, perhaps they're not. Maybe they're, per se, a little too senior for what we might need right now. But in any cases, what does a successful growth marketer look like? What does a really successful marketplace type operations leader look like? Do you know anybody? What has worked well and not worked well for you in the past, right? And just trying to absorb as much knowledge as possible from those more experienced leaders. And what that generally leads into is, is introductions to prospective candidates. Throughout those conversations is what you start doing. You start establishing a baseline and reference points on who might be a really, really high performer, who's an A-plus performer versus who's a B-plus performer versus who's an A performer. And in combination with that is you gain a deeper understanding on what we actually need for the business right now. And so I think that that's kind of the first phase is just understanding who am I looking for and where might they live, where might they exist, can I get connected to them? And then, you know, once you start actually getting engaged and having those conversations, it's ultimately about communicating what success in the role looks like, communicating what the vision is, first and foremost, what the vision is for the company. What are we ultimately trying to accomplish? What do we believe? If we have success, what will become true? And I think it's incredibly important for a, you know, a founder CEO to be able to communicate just that. Because uh, the reality is, is we're hiring more experienced leaders. It's not our job to to tell them how to do things. It's uh, it is within our you know job to to help identify the problems that need to be solved, but not necessarily how to solve them. And so I think that that's you know key for the most senior leaders is to communicate the vision and communicate what needs to be solved, but allow them to do the problem solving and, and ensure that they're properly resourced and supported in doing so. Yeah, that's a really good thought too, especially like the fact that does your mission and vision actually align with what they are looking to achieve as well and get out of it. What's also your approach to you know building culture, especially when you, since it's quite spread out, I mean, I, I know we're living in COVID times, but you're in different cities. What has, as CEO, what's been your kind of ways you're able to build culture throughout your team when, when your team is going to be you know all over North America? Yeah, you know, I think that... Uh... 
culture will be defined no matter what. It will either be defined intentionally or unintentionally. And obviously, we want to be incredibly intentional with the uh, with the culture that we are building and cultivating. And so, you know, the way that I think about culture is culture is a shared way of doing things with a passion. And, and you know, truly, it, it's the foundation for our company. It's what enables us to move at a really fast pace with, with frankly, limited structure. An early stage company is going to have less structure. And culture kind of serves as the glue that, that holds that together. And when we have a strong culture, we need less rules. We need less process because there's there's inherent trust in the team and a mutual understanding of how we might be expected to do things. You know, I think um, Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, uh, related it to the idea of a family. A family doesn't necessarily need to have a whole lot of rules and processes. They kind of in, naturally in sync with one another and can move quickly. Building and defining a strong culture produces that same type of environment. And so, you know, for us, one of the key aspects of defining our culture is, is through our core values. Now, core values in, in itself words on a board or words in a deck aren't sufficient. But more importantly, core values help to outline or transcribe the unwritten rules that are now written. It is more or less describes our modus operandi, how we are expected to do and make decisions when when nobody is looking. For us, we, we talk about them. It's not just words on a board or, or words in a deck. We talk about them daily. We talk about them at our all hands. When we give shout outs to our team members, you not only you know shout out to the team member on, on, on what they did, but what core value did they actually live out, right? And, and let's bring those to life every single day. And and so we talk about them quite frequently. We oftentimes say that we hire, fire, and promote uh, based on culture. And so culture is, is the foundation to the company. And, and without it, we will not be successful. I appreciate all those thoughts as well as how you think about it as a family where you have maybe like guidelines, but at the same time, it's not micromanaging or what have you. And so that makes a lot of sense. I know obviously AAA's very different, but I'm just thinking to myself as a consumer, like when my battery dies, I'll call AAA and AAA will come and and repair my battery. I know that AAA, I don't presume they, they do breaks and obviously all the services that you do, but how do you position yourself against to someone like me that you know might use AAA just when I actually do need um, at least like a battery change? It's important to think about where we may be actually acquiring that customer, right? It's it's less likely that we may acquire a customer because they need a battery change, although it's possible. Perhaps you're not a AAA member. But the way that we think about it is there are particularly unique points in, in a customer's uh, car management experience, as we might call it, that make themselves readily accessible and available to be acquired. And then once we once we acquire them, once we get them into our ecosystem and show them an amazing customer experience, we can be their go-to provider for all things car care. And so perhaps, you know, you get an oil change from us. Perhaps you get a brake repair from us or a similar service, right? And then at that point, you've got a trusted provider and, and perhaps you don't need AAA anymore. Or instead of calling AAA, you think, hey, I'm going to call new brakes, right? And so I think that as, you know, in comparison to AAA, that's how we might think about about it. We aren't necessarily a roadside assistance company. We don't, you know, do towing, but we can, you know, create some of the similar convenience that AAA does. Got it. It makes a lot of sense in terms of just how you think about the actual customer acquisition and as well as the type of customer that when new breaks would be top of mind for them. Um, and and maybe when it wouldn't be um, a top of mind. So that that makes a lot of sense. Um, so Talk to you about like the future. What's your what's what's the mission of New Breaks? How many markets are you currently in, and kind of what's like the expansion? How are you looking to expand? Yeah, sure. So you know, our mission is which we talk about quite frequently, and I think that this is also a key part of 
of cultivating and building that culture. But our mission is we want to become the most loved, trusted, reliable company in car care. You know, and I'm proud to say, I think if you ask every single person on our team, what is our mission, they'd recite that directly back to you. We want to become the most loved, trusted, reliable company in car care. Our, our vision is, you know, ultimately we envision a world where uh, a, a vehicle operator, whether it be a consumer or a fleet operator, never steps shop into, uh, never steps foot into a shop or a dealership again. Um, whereas those services are delivered on site, wherever you might be. Secondly, is that your vehicle largely takes care of itself. Right now, one of the one of the secular trends that our business is a response to is is a connected vehicles, uh, connected vehicle technology. Right now, fifty percent of new vehicles are are quote unquote connected by twenty twenty five. Ninety five percent of vehicles are quote unquote connected. And what we mean by connected is that your vehicle is actually communicating with. Uh, other vehicles, uh, its driver, uh, or surrounding infrastructure. And one of the key aspects of vehicle ownership that is going to be fundamentally changed as a byproduct of connected vehicles is maintenance and servicing. Because uh, as I mentioned earlier, is we're building technology that actually integrates directly into your vehicle. Uh, and so that we can monitor your vehicle's maintenance and service needs in real time. And we can actually proactively tell you uh, when you need to be serviced. And so you can imagine a world where, you know, you get a push notification on your phone saying, hey, Mike, you're, you're due for an oil change in 100 miles. Swipe right, click confirm, and our trusted service provider will show up and deliver that, you know, on site wherever you might be. So that's ultimately the experience and the, and the platform that we are building. Now, in terms of more tactically uh, what our expansion plans are is, as I mentioned, um, we are, you know, we had an initial focus on on brake repair. We've now broadened our service offering to a complete uh, full suite of preventative maintenance and repair services. We're currently operating in eight markets across four different states uh, with the expectation that we'll double our footprint um, this year. Um, you know, reaching more of a, of a national footprint. Um, and then in addition to servicing, to, to serving the consumer, uh, the consumer customers were, we're also very aggressively, um, investing into supporting our fleet customers. Um, so your, your fleet operators, that might be an Amazon delivery company. It might be an HVAC or plumbing company. It might be, um, you know, some other form of a delivery company, which are all, all of those, that, that company, uh, segment is all accelerating on the back of the direct to consumer trend, uh, which has, you know, only had gasoline poured on it as a byproduct of COVID. And so we are not only uh, building to support the consumer customer, but also the fleet customer as we build out our connected vehicle service platform. That's awesome. Thanks so much for uh, for sharing that. And I think that what I think is also interesting too, because um, I'd imagine during COVID, uh, you probably saw like people probably were searching a lot more online for maintenance repair, but also that they definitely wanted probably delivered to them and actually have that uh, maintenance repair on site versus you know going back and doing it at an actual shop. And I think that that what's interesting about it is that it actually seems pretty sticky. Whereas you know I I talked to a lot of designated brands. Some people do like shopping online, their groceries, but but other people actually do like going to the store, feeling a sense of like touch and feel for groceries, and you know actually actually shop at their grocery store. Whereas I don't think that people are going to be like, oh, I just had this experience of new breaks. I definitely want to go back to actually take my car into the shop. If that makes sense. Totally makes sense. I, I certainly agree with you. Um, or, or perhaps we all could agree that you know taking your vehicle to the shop or to the dealership it is a painful, cumbersome experience. And frankly, once we find a better alternative, I don't think there are very many people, if at all, uh, that want to relive that again. 
Totally, totally. So what's one book that inspired you professionally and one book that inspired you personally? So a book that, that inspired me professionally is, is Six Tires, No Plan. And it is uh, effectively a, a biography on, on the founder of Discount Tire. And you know what I took, you know, Discount Tire is the number one tire retailer uh, in the country, $5.2 billion a year in revenue. And But what I really took away from that book was uh, one of the reasons why you know, Discount Tire has, a, has actually, all things considered for a brick and mortar experience, a pretty great customer experience. Uh, they really take care of their customers. And one of the driving forces behind that is that Discount Tire from the earliest days empowered their frontline workers. They empowered and incentivized them. And, you know, we've taken a very a similar approach with our service technicians. You know, our technicians are the lifeblood of the business. They're the ones that interface with the customer. They're the face of the brand. Our technicians earn 15 to 20% more working with us than they do in the traditional repair shop or dealership. We issue stock options to every single employee in our company, something that's near and dear to me. We want those individuals to be a part of something bigger uh, than just their own job. And, you know, we provide them with a a full suite of benefits uh, that's frankly unmatched in the industry. And so really uh, empowering and supporting our frontline workers is of the utmost importance. And that's one of the key themes that I took away from uh, Six Tires, No Plan, the book on the discount tire uh, rise. And then from a personal standpoint, which it certainly is applicable to business, is Extreme Ownership. It's a book by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, uh, two former Navy SEALs, uh, about leadership. Uh, and the idea of extreme ownership is that ultimately, you know, everything is my responsibility. And, and certainly, you know, from the perspective of CEO, is that's the way that I see it. At the end of the day, whether we're successful or not successful, it is ultimately my responsibility. It's my responsibility to make sure that we are resourced, that we have the right team members in the right seats, and that we're properly aligned and executing. And so, you know, I apply that not only to business, but also to my personal life. I appreciate that, Walker, you sharing both these books. I don't think we've had a former guest bring up either of these books. So really excited to have you to the book list. My final question to you is, what's one piece of advice that you have for founders who are currently building? Yeah, sure. You know, I'm going to hijack this piece of advice from the founder and CEO of Whoop, the smart band, but uh, I thought it was really well articulated. And the advice was, is, uh, you know, as a, as a founder CEO is to not allow your personal mindset to be influenced by the company's success or struggles. Because the reality is, is that, you know, a startup is not a straight line. There are going to be tribes and tribulations. There's also going to be, there's going to be highs, there's going to be lows. And it's incredibly important to stay even keel. And so to not judge my personal success within, you know, my job as CEO by the company's performance, because that can be a zig and a zag. And in any case, we need to be not too high, not too low, even keel all the time. I love that. I love that. I think that that's an excellent piece of advice. Walker, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you again so much for your time. Mike, I've enjoyed it, man. I appreciate the time as well. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you. And there you have it. It was so fun chatting with Walker. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.